All right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. Woo, check this out. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. It's presented by our friends at carparts.com. And you'll present it just a fancy way to say we're a present, Kevin. The second season, bro. Here we are, ready to go. And I'm fired up about our first person. I'm ready to go running right out of the gate, man. It's been like, you know, chomping at the bit to get back in the driver's seat here and uh, have some fun with you and all the listeners out there, man, because... We, t- we dive into some pretty awesome stuff on this show. Yeah, exactly, man. And today it's all about burning steel. And I got to tell you, man, I don't know how your holidays have been, but mine, I had a house fire. So I've been, you know, jumping from hotels to Airbnbs, and now I'm living with the in-laws because of the house fire. So burning anything wouldn't normally set too well with me. Like thinking about fire and burning steel probably wouldn't be comfortable for most. However, I'm here to tell you we got one of the baddest in the land. Like this guy is known as one of the baddest like welders on earth. That's how he gets. That's how Kevin Bird introduced me. So you know <laughs> Man, I, I I'd even go beyond. He's like he's like superhero status. You know, like there are many of us. You know, you and I included that love to burn metal, love to melt it down, love to weld. Yeah, and uh, you know. We'll pat ourselves on the back like, dude, stack of dimes, looks good, you know? But this guy is on a whole nother level. Like, uh, he's been doing it for, I don't know, 40-something years. Uh, This guy gets called from people all over the world. I mean, his typical customer, so he's got a shop uh, just outside Detroit. So, I mean, he is the guy you go to, all the big three, right? When we've got prototypes, when we've got, you know, high-dollar one-off stuff, cylinder heads, cylinder blocks... You name it, whatever prototype it is, you might only have one or two of them in the entire world. It might have cost millions of dollars to develop. And if you got a problem, if you got a miscast, uh, maybe your machinist kind of oopsed something, anything, this is the guy you go to. If you're a top fuel guy and you've got a, you know, a rare one-off head, you've got some hand port and you got whatever, you lose a valve, this is the guy you bring it to. His customer base is the who's who, the Roushes, the Ford Racings, the Dart billet blocks and heads. I mean, this guy can do it all, uh, and they still call him to fly all over the world to weld, uh, whether it's big furnaces, you know, you name it. Uh, yeah. Because he's he's just one of those guys that doesn't stop. He's just always moving the bar and uh, learning something new. And every time I talk to him, man, it, it's filling my head with something awesome. 
So we're gonna have a good time picking his brain today. Yeah, man, and, and a few people might know this, but it is actually a fact. The sunglasses I oftentimes wear on our TV show, Two Guys Garage, he actually welded out of a railroad tie and two Coke cans. It's unbelievable, those sunglasses, he welded the entire frame up. All right, you using nothing but map gas and, and a ball peen hammer. The dude's got skills. So uh, I'll tell you, we're going to take a break now. Uh, when we come back, why don't you explain exactly who Mr. Chris Razor actually is? He's Superman. I mean, <laughs> that's it, man. He's Superman. Instead of the S, he's got a W. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So his shop, his shop is high tech welding. Like I said, they're right outside Detroit. And from a specialty, this guy has, I think, nine, ten different welding machines. Uh, so he doesn't have the, the, the do-all, you know, just, yep, I got my TIG. Man, this guy's got everything covered, exotic materials. Uh, he can weld, you know, super thick wall copper, I mean, titanium, you name it, man. So I'm pretty jazzed up. I think we got to get Chris on the line here and, um, yeah. you know, really dive deep because we can do the, the the basic pointers, but we got a professional here where we could probably, you know, kind of get into the weeds a little bit and uh, mm. Maybe, mm. You know, learn something new. Hey, I'm with you, Kevin. I like the weeds. Let's go there. We'll take a quick break on the Two Guys Garage podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. And coming back to Superman of Welding. Knowledge is next, y'all, on the Two Guys Garage podcast. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast presented by CarParts.com. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. And man, fired up. We have the man to meet the legend, Chris Razor, on with us. Kevin, how did you first meet Chris? Was it jealousy, envy? You were trying to learn something from the man, the master? Well, you know, as you know, most of the guys know, I work for Ford. I work in the prototypes. Um, you know, so I'm in R&D, you know, advanced powertrain. And that's all we do. We make stuff from nothing. You know, if we're going to do the next generation, we're always five, ten years out in the future. Uh, sure. And it's all prototypes, right? We're doing rapid castings, you know, some billet stuff, anything it takes to get from scratch, clean sheet of paper, the first, you know, draft built, running, and on dyno, get the first numbers, the first pulls, you know, the power, the emissions, everything else. Uh, and so it's a go fast, right? You got somebody comes in the room and says, you know, we want a V8, we want a V6, we want this, we want that. And we're going to making castings and man, everybody's showing at the table uh, on build day. And if your parts aren't there, you are hosed. And man, I'm telling you, when you're doing prototypes, anything can go wrong. And this guy is the one everyone says, go to him, man. He'll fix it. Hey, I got to tell you, man, the paradox you just presented, you just gave a little in-depth detail as to what you do on a daily, you know, and just to let you know, last weekend, I did a demolition derby at my house with nine cars and then jumped a minivan and blew up the engine with nitrous, shoving a bunch of nitrous through it. <laughs> so the, the paradox of our lives are dynamically different. <laughs> oh, but it's so awesome when you put it together, you know? Uh, so Chris... Man, how long have you been welding? What sort of what sort of led you down that path? What was your very first? What was the very first time you burnt some some steels, some metal, and thought to yourself, "Wow, this is kind of cool." Yeah, I started uh, back in 1974 in a little tool and die shop, and this this shop was making military arms. So my very first weld job was a 55 caliber machine gun mount that goes in a helicopter and a Willys Jeep. 
for the army. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good inspiration to get started. Yeah. Man. You know, and to, to me, it was just like, it was all MIG welding, which is, you know, everyone knows about. It's pretty common. But it was so cool knowing that you take all these different pieces to put it together, and this is what you have, you know. And uh, I just happened to see one of those at a show not too long ago in Livonia, Michigan. And that was, I was showing everybody, that's the first thing I ever welded. They had an army jeep there with a 55 caliber in the back. So did you weld like a repair job or, or, or was no, it? No, this is a production job yeah. where you're putting it all together with all the gussets and all the tie downs. And yeah, it was pretty crazy. You know, look back at it, but uh, that's where I first started. <laughs> so then kind of how did it go from there? Like how long did you work that job? And then what got you spawned off on being the superhero that you are now? Uh, just short story here. Uh, started that little tool and die shop with the automotive world. Went over to a company called Demco in Detroit and, they manufacture parts with big three and we were welding bumper guard brackets and bumpers and uh, oil pans. And that job, there was an opportunity. They were, were run over to Ford Motor Company then at the frame plant there. So I was out of there onto the frame plant. Worked there about two or three years in the mid mid seventies. Then they took all the frames out of the midsize cars. So I was out the door. What is it like working at Ford in the mid seventies? Like what was that experience? Because you know, you see pictures and, you know, history of Ford. Uh, what was that like? Is it, you know, something from a movie scene, you know, big assembly line style, robots lifting cars? What is that? Exactly right. Big assembly line style. There was 4,000 people in there welding all at wow. the same time. Whoa. And, and all these frame rails were coming down to jig fixtures and they would assemble them. And you start welding them right now. One every, you did 72 an hour. I mean, you were Whoa. flying through this deal. Whoa. In fact, there were so many welders. We used to make little blinders for our glasses not to get flashed, you know, like a horse whip would have. You only look in one direction. Oh, I can imagine sparks got to be flying everywhere. Just everywhere. Lights, flash, sparks, the noise, you know, just massive amount. But were each of you responsible for a certain area or a certain gusset or a certain bracket on the on the frame? A certain area. Everyone had approximately like a three inch long bead whether that's on a bracket or on a frame rail or a motor mount or a cross member. So you had thousands of welders all doing these little, little tiny bits. So when it gets down to the end, you got a complete frame. Is, is that why when you see cars from the seventies, you, you see a lot of just slag and slag and, and miss and yeah. seams, you know, here's the bracket, half the bracket got welded, but the other half is just like perfect. They missed it. To- totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We see that all the time. Yeah. A lot, a lot of that's caused by because the guys were reaching back, and these were all arc welded, believe it or not. They oh, wow. don't make welding. So you were loading up an arc welding rod. Oops, that frame was out of your booth. It's out of your area. You just try to get what you could. <laughs> it, was, it was massive chaos on steroids. It really was. Yeah, if you think about like what they're trying to do is get a car out the out the door, you know, every minute or every thirty seconds or whatever it is, you know, different plants will have an eighteen second, you know, cycle time, a thirty, a minute, and uh, that's how fast you can make a car. So every minute, a complete car would be done, but you only got thirty seconds or sixty seconds to do something. A little incremental part that you're part of that whole picture. Yeah, yep. it was pretty. It was pretty fast paced and uh, uh, pretty stressful too. At the same time. But at the same time, you can see, you know, some of the principles you probably use and teach today, right, is you can't put too much heat in one area. So I'm sure you guys all had a little area opposite so you can allow cooling, right? And that way, you know, the person up there was, you know, couldn't get in your area. You couldn't get in theirs and so forth, right? Absolutely. I mean, they, they strategically place the welds, you know, totally opposite sides of the frames. 
alternating back and forth, especially when you go to well, the main cross members in across the rear and across the front. It was very all laid out, timing, length of weld, everything, just to keep everything straight. So when you get that frame to the end and they take it off the jig, it doesn't go like a banana. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so many there's so many features in the design of a vehicle that uh, you know, you might propose something and they'll go through from a manufacturing study and they'll go, Hey, that's too long on the cycle time. You know, can't do it. We gotta refigure it, we gotta reconfigure. You know, so they either double up the manpower or double up the machine so they split the line, right. you know, so they can take a little bit longer on cycle time, but times two or times three or whatever it is, it, it still merges back in and meets the 30 second, 60 second or whatever it is. It's yeah, absolutely, it's amazing. And a lot of times it's joint design, whether it's a lap joint or a layover joint or a fillet, that all takes longer time for some than others. So they'll change the joint design and achieve that cycle time. So. It's an orchestra. It really is. Lead us into some of the rare metals and some of this newer stuff that you're a big part of and people reach out to to you as the resource and the man, you know, to kind of go to when they're up against something like that. So what got you into some of these crazier, more odd and rare metals? Well, just after I left Ford Motor Company, of course, I got laid off. That very first tool and die shop called me up and I went to work back for them. They were welding copper for the electric arc furnace, steel industry. And they were just kind of new to that industry and they were just starting. So they were happy to have me thinking, you know, oh, he's gonna jump in here and weld all this stuff. Well, tell me what, it took a year to master welding copper after all that welding I had it prior to that. It's a it's a one of a kind standalone. Uh, there's probably only a half a dozen copper welders in the whole United States. Oh, wow. So what's a what's the secrets of it? Like what what does it take to weld copper? A uh, lot of amperage, uh, seven hundred amps, uh, pure helium, ultra high pure heat helium to weld it. The helium helps induce a little more heat in the weld puddle. But uh, a lot of this copper is twelve inches in diameter, one inch thick wall, or three inch thick plates and fabs and seven hundred amps. Did you guys hear that? Seven hundred amps. Yeah. So how does it move? Like uh, for anybody that's welded steel, stainless, aluminum, right? So steel is pretty pretty stable, pretty simple. Stainless steel to me feels very watery. You know, the puddle will move around on you if you just barely kind of move it all. Uh, aluminum to me, I, I like it. It's probably one of my more favorite metals. Uh, it's a bigger puddle, but it's very slow, sluggish. Like, you know, once you're, once you're good with it, you can move that puddle real nice and calmly. So how does copper kind of flow, move, melt? Oh, co copper is a whole standalone deal. I would say the comparison, um, more on the oh, steel side, but you know, seven times more amperage. You have to induce so, so much heat because the surrounding copper is soaking all the heat out. And so yeah. you have to really focal point put a lot of amperage. And, and the other thing is, is non-metallic. So it has no magnetic draw to, to it so when you're welding this copper you really got to take the tungsten bury it almost in the puddle to force all those amps into the penetrating part of the puddle and washing into the sides huh does the arc tend to wander around then or if you would pull the arc out an eighth of an inch you, you would increase your temperature in the weld zone to fifty thousand degrees on a long arc you almost have that tungsten almost touching the puddle and you have to actually move that puddle with the tungsten, you got to tell it which way to go. You're kind of pushing it around. Yeah, kind of pushing it around, but there isn't really anything to compare it to. 
Now, with 700 amps, like what kind of gloves and stuff do you have to wear to not fry yourself? Reynolds wrap. A lot of Reynolds wrap. Tons of Reynolds wrap. Yeah, yeah a lot of Reynolds yeah. wrap. Yeah, medium <laughs> well used by the end of the day. Uh, we use Kevlar fireproof gloves that are, are lined in with felt and wool on the inside. Um, as you get more experience, you can wear a typically heavy-duty welding glove, and you know how to position your hand out of the reflective zone where the heat doesn't really get to your gloves. But um, it is very intense because this pipe, you know, the surrounding area gets to five to 600 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a lot of people will probably never experience copper and, you know, sort of what you're referring to. Some of the other metals that is that is so common in, you know, performance-based cars, uh, cars that want to, you know, lighten the weight and the package up. How about some of those? How, how do those metals tend to react compared to, a, you know, regular steel, aluminum, something that we're more common with? Sure. Yeah. You know, your chrome mollies where you're putting together that that hot rod cage and your Road car. Cage, right. Yeah. You know, you can go, you know, chrome molly is special because of the chrome in it. it. It can be lighter weight, thinner wall and have as much strength as steel in a heavier wall, too. So, right. And the chrome molly is really fun to weld. I mean, it is really uh, using mm -hmm. a uh, gas lens and stuff. You can really create a very nice, easy puddle. And you, it, it's really a joy to weld. It's a joy to weld, especially when you have the right fit. You know, welding's all yeah. about getting the joint yeah. right, no gaps, none yeah. of that. Because you have a gap, you're inducing more heat into the part. And Chrome doesn't really like that. You know, you want to keep it as cool as possible when you're welding. You do a ton of castings, like cylinder heads, uh, blocks, that sort of thing. Um, you know, for a lot of guys, one, their welder probably isn't up to snuff, right? Uh, you might be able to get, you know... 316s, maybe you can get a quarter of aluminum thickness on, you know, most of the home guys welders. So what, what size welder do you have or what do you need? Or can you do some tricks like preheating? Uh, I know you've got things like shaker tables. What are some of the kind of unique things that you'll do uh, that really ensures when Dart brings you, you know, whatever, five, $10,000 billet block, or you've got a top fuel head sitting on your desk, or you got a one-off prototype, uh, what are some of the tricks and, and insights that you can kind of share on what makes it successful? Well, if you're using a, a welding machine like a guy may have in his garage, the, the quickest way to get past that hurdle it would be to preheat the aluminum. And before you preheat, you want to clean it as, as best as possible because I always have to tell people the preparatory work is 90% of the welding process. Getting it clean, Amen. getting it ready, getting the joint right. But then the preheat on a, on a smaller welder or an older welder can really help that puddle come and melt quicker and, and allow you to weld something heavier. Now, what I do on the, the dark blocks has things where it's four or five inch thick aluminum billet. I weld that with no preheat. And I trick that by using a special shielding gas with a certain percentage of helium in that. So you could take a cylinder head that you could never weld with argon switch it to that shielding gas and and create that energy and heat almost like you preheated it all right so a lot of these inverter welders have made the aluminum process i know a lot of guys are buying aluminum tape welders and, and they're all inverters and and they really have stepped up the ability to weld aluminum almost to the level of as easy as steel just based on that inverter technology yeah, it's it's pretty amazing the size of the machine and the size of the power cords, you know, and how much energy they sucked out of the wall, what you can do with, with inverter. And, and you can explain it probably better. You're taking an AC 
uh, coming into the machine, but then you're using that inverter to convert it into uh, DC and then back to, you know, AC again. So you're shaping it the way you want. and You're shaping. It allows you to shape the waveform along with some machines have the ability to split the positive and negative amplitude of the well. So you can run so many amps negative, say 200 amps negative and 150 positive. The more negative amps you run, the more penetration you're going to get. The more positive amps, if you flip it the other way, you'd have more cleaning action and less penetration. So um, it has a lot of advantages on thicknesses versus thin, uh, more cleaning, uh, better on thinner materials. See, I, I hope you guys were taking notes because that's stuff that you just can't find anywhere else, that patented knowledge. And we're going to get more of it here in just a minute. We have to take a break right now. But literally, when we come up, my man Chris is going to give us pointers, some tips for beginners, for mid-tier TIG welders, and for us advanced guys like Kevin. <laughs> hey, you're going to learn something too. So hang in there. We'll be back in just a minute on the Two Guys Garage podcast with Kevin Bird and Willie B. It's the Two Guys Garage podcast presented by CarParts.com. He, the handsome one, is Kevin Bird. I and Willie B, we have Chris Razor on with us. This dude can burn anything. And by burn anything, any metal, exotic metals, aluminum, you want, I don't know, something crazy. Like back in the day when I was building the Pinewood Derby, tungsten was the bomb because it's heavier. And you can melt that in the front of your car and get it over the front of the wheels. I'm just saying, there's tricks, y'all. And Chris knows all of them. <laughs> Are you a Pinewood Pinewood Derby master? Dude, I I built several Pinewood Derby cars, man. I used to love that. (laughs) (laughs) I used to bake the nails in Slick 50. That's not legal. But, yeah, you would bake the nails in the oven and that old stuff's like Slick 50, you know, and and do little tricks like that. Put some tungsten in the front of the car over the front wheels so it would would leave a little harder. There's there's tricks, man. You just don't whittle wood. Chris knows there's tricks to everything nowadays. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's why. Speaking of tricks, this guy is going to give us some more. Yeah, man. So let's look at the basics. Let's start with probably MIG welding. Give us three things that you see beginners sort of stumble on or forget about, you know? Give us three things right off the top of your head that beginners or mid-tier people, you know, tend to have an issue, problem, or forget. Yeah, well, MIG welding, the, the biggest thing I see is they're too far away from the puddle with the with the gun, okay, with the gun. They're just too, too far back. So they're, you know, an inch away from where they're trying to weld. So you don't get the gas coverage and you end up with some porosity. And, and the other thing is, I've noticed, is that they do not have enough gas flow. They're flowing at a lower rate. A lot, a lot of them are on a smaller bottle and they all try to conserve a little bit. But you have to be in that... 20 cubic feet, 25 cubic feet area to allow enough of that gas flow to cover. The third thing would be is the prep work, getting back to the prep work. If you're welding hot roll steel, even some cold roll, it may be rusty, sanding all that off, having a perfect shiny piece to start with. So you're, you're cleaning, you're being close enough to the weld and having enough gas flow. Uh, the other thing that might might be there's a lot of uh, back and forth about should you push a MIG or should you pull a MIG? I think over the years, I kind of like kind of being neutral to that, kind of straight in and and not really a drag, but kind of a push drag, if you understand what, what I'm saying. Yeah. That, that way, all the wire is going into the puddle. 
when you push a bead, it spatters all that weld out in front of you. It's stuck on the part. You got to clean the part up and make it look right. So I kind of use a direct in kind of straight uh, push on that, you know, push kind of neutral. Yeah, that's some good solid skinny. Now, what do you do as far as gravity, right? Not everything you can weld with MIG is just laying flat. So any kind of tips there? Because that's kind of that next level, right? Well, yeah. And here's the other thing. Everyone's vertical up in the welding world. Vertical up, vertical up. MIG welding is the exception. It does an excellent job of vertical down. Number one, it has enough penetration because the wire is really the arc. And when you're done, it's a beautiful, smooth bead and the travel rate is much faster. So I do do a lot of even half inch plate vertical down, quarter inch plate vertical down. Um, it, it's, it's a really overlooked process, I, I should, should say, because everything you're taught technically ver vertical up, but stick welding, that's true. But MIG has that advantage. So if you got a spot in your roll cage or a bracket that's vertical, don't be afraid to run vertical down on it. Keep it kind of still straight into the weld then. Straight into the weld. Move it fast. Close. You want to have a, a 3 8 stick out on the wire typically on that. Anything more, you're going to have trouble. Anything too, too close, you can actually orifice air into the stream of the shielding gas and have a porosity issue. Interesting. And, and when you think about TIG welding, let's apply the same sort of question uh, to TIG welding. A lot of times, you know, a lot of muscle memory is it comes into play. And, you know, uh, for me anyway, I, I, I love TIG welding. I just don't do it enough to have that, that muscle memory recall uh, on certain metals. And it's like, it's one of those things I, you know, especially now with kids, I, you know, the, the frequency that I can get out and spend a couple hours burning some steel you know, you're, you're you're kind of limited by the margins of your experience. And TIG welding, I feel like, is one of those things that you, the more experience and time you get cooking the, the metals, uh, the better you get at it. But what are things that people commonly miss up on uh, or forget about or don't quite remember after they haven't done it for a while? They haven't done it for a while. Exactly right. A lot of times it's, it's how far the tungsten you stick out, how pointed it is. I see a lot of guys... They'll, they'll touch the tungsten, it'll be a little bit dirty, but not too, too bad, and they're lazy and don't want to sharpen again. But trust me, if you, you touch it, take it out and sharpen it, because all you're doing is when those amps come down that tungsten, they're going sideways and every which way, and that arc is bouncing around all over that seam you're trying to hold. And the other thing, and you're exactly right on muscle but memory, getting the hand to move and staying the same height away from the weld and getting that rod in at just the right time to dip it. And uh, the other issue I see, guys get kind of stationary with their hand, and as they go, they either continue to go down into the puddle or bring it up too, too high. Yeah, yeah. And you get all that yeah. heat and all that black slag on everything. So It's something I notice I do if I haven't TIG welded in a while, I'll pull, I'll pull off of the puddle too fast. You correct, know? correct. And, and you, you don't let it – you don't let the gas – uh insulate it and, and i'll yeah you I'll, want to stay there and let it cool yeah, down you, you pull that gas out of there here comes the oxygen right to make a mess and i'm like then it's Whoa. hard to start on that spot yeah yeah i always i just space it you know i haven't done it in a couple of months i'm just hurrying doing a bracket or something i'll come off of it i'm like oh that looked great except i came off too fast yeah till the very end yeah it's a it's a great tip because you think you're done and you can just pull away but right, the metal's right. still hot enough. It's still going to pull oxygen in there. 
you yeah. know so yep keep that tungsten right on there and you hear that and when it's done you can let it go yeah. correct and, and you're absolutely right that's big tendency just to pull out and look at it everyone wants to stop like golf. and look where'd the yeah. ball go yeah yeah exactly <laughs> oh crap squirrel <laughs> and a lot of times the guys aren't wearing a thick enough glove and their hands burning right oh so yeah. they're trying to hurry 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 let off the pedal and and you know pull so yeah yeah i notice a lot of people especially in aluminum uh you're talking about like trying to get that rod the filler rod in there uh Kind of keep that, uh, like you said, the tungsten down in there. But think about your angle of your torch because that cup is shielding the heat. And uh, every now and then, if I'm just not paying attention, uh, or I'm in an awkward spot where I can't quite turn the cup so much, it is hard to get that rod in there without melting it off before you actually get it in the puddle. But that cup is your friend. Yep. Yeah, that reflective heat's an issue. A lot of times a guy go to stab the rod in there and it, it drops off because... You're exactly right. You don't have the proper torch angle, and it's reflecting all that heat up towards the end of that rod, and, and, and you prematurely melt that off before you get in the puddle. Yeah, yeah, and kind of same same principles. Don't melt the rod directly. You know, when you're when you're trying to dip it in there, sometimes you'll get where you're you're melting the rod, not the puddle. You know, you're putting the heat on the rod sometimes. The rod, the yeah, and you're missing the puddle and you miss the penetration, right? Yeah, yeah. Little yeah, things. aluminum's kind of funny in that that way because it melts at 1180 degrees instead of 2300 like steel. So when you get that rod and that reflective heat pool, you know, it's coming out of that well puddle. That's why they tend to melt off so much quicker than they would on steel. Well, so what is, you know, what are some things that people can do to get better for a lot of, a lot of people, uh, even, you know, guys like me that just love being in the shop? finding time to break out some brackets, some stainless, some aluminum or steel or whatever, and, you know, practice TIG welding. You know, I've got four projects hanging out there. I'm trying to make something go faster. You know, it's, it's difficult to find, you know, really the time. Is there things that people can can do that can make them a better TIG welder um, that is easy to practice? Yes, a couple things. And you're exactly right. Everyone's TIG weld a little bit. Now they got a project to do and they maybe haven't done it for a while and they're going to go out and make that real critical weld without the right practice and end up having trouble. So what you can do, it's like playing a piano, practice, practice, practice. You have to dedicate time to spend with the torch in your hand, foot pedal and rod and continually to get that muscle memory you first talked about, the hand mm -hmm. moving without thinking about what you're doing. The other thing I, I have for beginners when they first start feeding the rods, always an issue. You know, guys feed it in with their finger, then, oh, now what do I do? You know, and then they, they're trying to pull the rod out and get their fingers up higher. Set in a, in a chair while you're watching TV or YouTube or, or the two guys' garage show. Nice. Nice. Why do you get that in there? Yeah. Put that rod in between that <laughs> fingers and just develop that pushing where you hold it with two, you push it with one. And that memory of feeding the rod is the most important memory. I never think about feeding the rod. That's huh. the last thing on my mind. I got to try that one. Because I fall into that category you mentioned earlier where you kind of get short, 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 and then you're like, oh, I'm at the very yeah. end. My finger's about to burn off. Oh, when I'm out. Yeah, and you got a quarter inch left to weld, and you don't have enough rod. <laughs> and your hand's burning now because you're too close. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you practice pushing the rod through your fingers. Uh, that is the main thing to develop that without thinking. So you're looking at something else while you're still doing that. Take take a half rod, 18 inch rod, especially if you've got kids around house. You don't want to 
great big piece of wood. Right, right. <laughs> Say something one eighth or three thirty two dot diameter that you can really feel, and just watch the TV and move that through your fingers. And soon you'll forget about doing that. It'll be that memory you need. Your significant other's gonna be looking over at your watch in two guys' garage, and you got your welding glove on one hand, your coffee in the yeah. other, and you're fiddling with a rod. Be like, what the heck's going on in here? Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing in the garage later? Yeah. That's, uh, but those little muscle memory things and keeping the tungsten the proper distance away based on your amperage and the joint design. Um, those are, are things, but feeding the rod seems to be the biggest issue in that even the medium skilled people still have a problem. Well, let's say you can you can just lay that stack of dimes. You got the aluminum puddle down, you've, you've got the rhythm. What are uh, some other tips on maybe uh, different torches, lenses, uh, settings, anything like that that might be kind of that next level? How do you like glass cups? Do you, do you like glass cups? Believe it or not, in 1974, that's all they had was glass tig, tig cups. Oh, wait. That was, that's what we all had. We didn't have, and I now it's those. reborn again. Now it's discovery. <gasps> glass tig nozzles. Yeah, I thought that. <laughs> that was old school. Um, yeah, they're very helpful, especially if you're in a corner or you're welding around a roll cage and you you can actually look through that glass and see what you're doing a little bit, yeah. you know. Yeah. It just adds more light to the area because the tungsten's emitting light down that whole thing. So it's kind of like a flashlight on your weld zone now. So you just not that little tiny point you're looking at. All Very right. good. And everyone's heard about all the uh, gas lenses and the huge gas lenses. And, and, and those designs have really come a long way. And they've really, especially on steel, that's, very reactive, you know, really susceptible to, to scaling up and stuff. They're, they're excellent. Um, tungsten, that's another thing. There's so many different grades of tungsten now. I, I have uh, one brand I use just on steel and stainless and the other on aluminum, one on titanium, and they all have a different characteristic to them. Um, the one on steel, the point stays pointier longer. The tungsten for aluminum balls up a smaller ball. Hmm. Getting back to settings, pulsing. You know, if you're trying to get that perfect bead look, those stack of dimes, that pulsing is taking the the thought process of down on the pedal, off with the pedal, down on the pedal. You just hit it, and there you go. I think for me, the biggest thing to keep it per perfect is you're about three quarter way through. God, that was a good one, and you start thinking about it. <laughs> you pull your lens up. Holy crap, that's the worst look part. You know, so once. Once you get that stuff set, try not to think too hard. You can think yourself into a problem. So for what you're doing, because you're typically not doing production stuff, so you're not set up. Where a lot of guys that are set up, they got a rotating fixture, something they can pulse it, bah, 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 make it look perfect. Do you use much pulse? Because I'm always doing random stuff, and it's never until I'm kind of done that I was. I kind of look back and go, should I try pulse? But I never, I never use it. I always just use my foot. I just always use my foot. Oh, I love pulse. Huh. I love it. I love it. But I can pulse with my foot pedal. You know, I, I'm to that point where I can make it look just like you pulse it or with the foot pedal. That doesn't matter. Um, but that being said, um, you're you're probably in the 80 percentile range. That's what guys do. You know, they just kind of weld and and then they think about the pulse or after. I mean, I'm doing it with my foot always, right? Each bead is a single, but I never think of setting the machine to do it. And then when I've tried it a little bit, I'm like, oh, these first three are perfect, but my hand's not in the right position and I just needed to wiggle it. Oh, and I'm, it's pulsing on me anyways, you know, like. Correct, <laughs> correct. 
There is a learning curve with it. There's no doubt. A little learning curve setting it up. So it kind of acts just like your foot yeah. acts. And uh, that's just a trial and error thing. Change the settings, get some scrap stuff, change the settings, see how it varies and changes the length of time on, the background amperage, and the, and the full amperage. Um, there's one other little tip on, on TIG welding that I'd like to mention. And that is a lot of guys said they may have a 250 amp machine. They said at 100 amps because they're welding some 116th tubing or 18th tubing. I always weld my machine wide open bore and I use the foot pedal to control all that. You have a certain range of foot pedal. So if you set it at 100 amps, you got to get all the way down to the floor to get to 100 amps. When you get to the edge of material, you're trying to get off of that so it doesn't melt the edge. You got that whole travel to get off it with your foot. When you run full amperage, you just I, you just feather touch the pedal, and you can get that full range. And it's just a faster, quicker way to to make the weld. Yeah, it's not intuitive when you come from a MIG where you set it right. So you want to get your setting right, and then you go to TIG, and you're like, "Well, I got to get the right setting." But that's one where you got it on your foot. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's right. a great point. Yeah, and then, absolutely. Uh, of course, the wireless foot pedals that we have today are just outstanding, and you don't think much about them, but it's one less yeah. cord to manage and get around the shop or, or move around your truck or car when you're welding and, you know, and trying to run it with your knee. Damn it, Chris, you're costing me money. Cause out of this, I got to go buy some glass lenses or glass yeah. cups <laughs> and I'm going to get that wireless pedal up and I'm putting off forever. Yeah. I tell you, <laughs> I, I was a little suspect of them in the beginning, but they're just, you would never not know it's wireless. They're so accurate. Yeah, let me tell you the kind of people that call him up. SpaceX. Real quick before we go, just the quickies. What have you welded for SpaceX? Uh, the locking ring that just was on the capsule that took the astronaut up to the uh, space station. Uh, the company was machining it, made a boo-boo, machine boo-boo, and we were able to weld that thing up and save that part. You also did a spacesuit too, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely right. NASA contacted me, and we welded the first Mars spacesuit. Man, uh, actually, it's the breastplate that goes over wow. the astronaut's chest and his back, and another machining mistake. And so I would have had a chance to weld that for them. So. What was that material? Unobtainium? What? What is no, that? No, no. Actually, it was just sixty sixty one T six. Believe it or not. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty everyday stuff that people weld, you know. It's um, not every day that you get to weld something that goes into space, man. Yeah, That's yeah. pretty damn cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, look, man, our space is pretty much over, man. So we just want to thank you for your time uh, and sharing the knowledge. It was really, it was incredible having you on. Uh, and don't forget about our show, Aaron, weekends on the Motor Trend Network. Check your local listings and episodes. Also now streaming on Motor Trend On Demand, presented by CarParts.com. Thanks for our guest, Chris Razor, my man, Kevin Bird. I am Willie B., our producer, Scoop and our executive producer, Bob Ecker. Yeah, and don't forget to check out our website, twoguysgarage.com, and share your thoughts with us. We're everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Guys Garage. The Two Guys Garage podcast is a copyright 2021, Britain Productions Incorporated, all rights reserved. I bet Chris would tell you one of the coolest things he ever welded with my sunglasses, though. Like, Mars is cool. <laughs> sunglasses? Please. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, that guy's got so many great stories. He's been everywhere, right? I mean, when you got SpaceX calling you, we got NASA calling you, you know, when you got boilers or whatever, furnaces that only have six guys in the world that even know how to do it, they're calling Now he's going to have people from Two Guys Garage calling him. So 
he just went up another tier. He just elevated. <laughs> he just elevated, man. Hey, man, it's Kevin Burns, Willie B. We'll catch you guys on the next Two Guys Garage podcast. You guys take care. Two Guys Garage podcast is a production of Britain Productions. For more episodes, visit iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.